Welcome to Transforming Medical Communications, a podcast by MedCom's experts. We share medical communications insights and advice from the best and brightest in the industry to find out what they're doing to push our industry forward. Here's your host, Wesley Portages. Welcome to the Transforming Medical Communications podcast. I'm your host, Wesley Portuguese. Today, I'm thrilled to have Jennifer Gith, known to many as Jenny, on our show. Jenny is currently the Senior Director in Omnichannel Strategy and Innovations in Global Scientific Communications at Pfizer. And with over 15 years of industry experience, Jenny is a master in leading cross-portfolio omnichannel scientific communication strategies. And her expertise really shines in amplifying emerging data across various platforms, including publications, congresses, and digital channels. Her approach to omnichannel communication is centered around providing personalized content experiences. And before we dive into our conversation, I want to make a quick uh, disclaimer, which is that, you know, the views and opinions that Jenny will share with us today are her own and do not necessarily reflect the official stance of Pfizer. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you. I'm so glad I'm here and thank you for having me, Wesley. Thank you for making the time to do so. And I'm excited about our upcoming conversation. So maybe let's start a little bit with your background. So you started as a researcher at Virginia Tech, I think about 20 years ago, right? And I would love to know what drew you towards science, but also from there, how you ended up in medical communications. I'll admit to about 20 years ago, before I start to date myself too much, I was, I actually started off as a political science major, but ended up in some biology classes and had some wonderful professors and I really learned from them how to ask questions of the world and how to seek answers. And I just really ended up loving science. And fast forward 20 years, and here I am today, still loving science. And just the more I learn, the more I appreciate the way that we go about asking questions and obtaining answers and and questioning the world. I just really love that and I appreciate it. And I'm so lucky to do what I do. I think we all are. So, and how did that lead to medical communications ultimately? It was kind of accidental, actually. I was in the labs and was went up to the labs in uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, actually, and was working there in research. Was down the hall from some wonderful, notable folks like Jim Allison as well. And But I found the research rewarding but I was also just fundamentally interested in how we were communicating our research. And it was really challenging to get your point across. And I found that if you don't get your point across, there are real implications to that. And what good is all this wonderful research if we're not able to convey it properly? And then, of course, the field itself was challenging. And, you know, getting tenure and writing grants and doing all those things was really um, overwhelming. I did. I started exploring other alternative careers, and I was in this wonderful lab setting, looked at being a patent lawyer. I, I went to NYU to a couple classes, right? But And then just fell into medical communications and interviewed with a small company and just really loved the philosophy of the owners and ended up working with them. And again, the rest is history. I did end up working at a few medcoms companies over the years and moved over the ranks before I came to Pfizer. Wow. You know, it really resonated with me what you said about like getting your point across and how important that is, because ultimately 
And that is why I am so passionate to be in Medcoms. No one can really do anything about the information they don't have or understand or, you know, have access to, right? Like, and if we look at our healthcare professionals, for instance, like how could they change their clinical decision-making if they're not informed about something? And that is something that keeps me going because ultimately that's going to benefit patients. And how do they, if you don't have that information, there are very real implications to that in terms of suboptimal care. And if you misinterpret information or if you have too much information and you have information overload and you can't find what you need, these are just very real challenges for what we all face today that are impacting our own health and also the health and and our profession and clinicians themselves and how they are able to work and how medcoms professionals are able to work as well as people in industry too. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. So how do you feel Medcoms looked like when you joined the Medcom space for the first time? And what would you say are like the biggest differences with the current landscape? Oh my gosh. And again, you start to reflect on how long you've been in the business and your gray hairs. It's just evolved so much as a profession. I felt like I found out about Medcoms kind of by accident. I ran into it. And now I feel like there are so many more programs and that it's really part of what people are able to learn about, even in their own universities and institutions. And that was not present as much. I think that we have a professional societies now that were not even started yet or in their infancy when I began. The emerging generation, not the younger generation, because I'm still 25, as we all know, has the opportunity to engage with those societies and learn and has those professional communities. So I think that that's changed a lot. And then I think society is evolving and science is changing and communications has become all the more important. We have so much that's being published and released and how it's being published and released is changing. How people are consuming information is changing now, right? Digital is much more important. So all that is very interesting, but You know, the fundamentals of communication and how to tell a story are still there. And they were there when back when I started, too. So if you get snowed by everything that's changing and going on, it helps to remember that all those basic principles still apply. I like that. Now, if we fast forward to today, what would you say are the biggest challenges right now in medical communications? I think it's pace of the field. Everything is moving very quickly. I think that, again, we have more published information than ever before. I think we have things like social media. And because we have so much out there digitally, it becomes difficult to discern what the truth is from all of the information that's out there. And if you start to think about things like AI, those systems don't aren't necessarily trained to understand the truth. They're trained to match their model. They're language models. They're not knowledge models. So discerning the truth from the fake facts becomes very challenging, even more so than I think when we started. So I think those are keeping up and upskilling and staying on top of what's most important and accurate and reliable are the hardest things that we do these days, for sure. I fully agree with that. 
we're aligned. And, you know, if you look at some of the basic statistics around that, like for instance, every 20 seconds, there's a new publication coming out right now, which is, you know, increase that time has decreased drastically. There are more and more publications. And then there are more channels that you could use. More channels, more challenge too, is understanding your audience. There's also a divide. So not everyone consumes information the same way. And not everyone has access to the same types of channels that we all do as well. We just talked about AI. Not everyone has access to a computer across the world. Not everyone has access to publications that are behind paywalls. And some of these channels aren't necessarily as broad in their reach as we would necessarily think. So it's really important, too, that we understand what's underneath the hood in terms of audience just be very practical in, in thinking about what their true needs are and whether we're getting to them or not. Well, I definitely want to dive a little bit more in this understanding your audience. But before we do that, when you talk about channels, like what would you say are maybe some channels that are currently underutilized by the industry? So I think we are making tremendous strides and there's a lot of excitement around things like plain language summaries, but there's not a lot of awareness around them necessarily amongst the patient communities. So I think we need to better understand channels of distribution for those types of materials. I think social media is a very controversial channel at times. And as medical and medical affairs, sometimes we struggle with what's appropriate versus not and what the real firewall should be relative to when activities start to become commercial or promotional. And those are very real concerns. And then, of course, there are other kind of communities that are coming up through things like QXMD and TrendMD, these channels that allow us to extend the reach of publications are growing in their audience and their awareness. Could we do more? Absolutely. I think what we should focus on is, are we doing more in, in the right ways and in the best ways that are going to allow us to reach our audience? The underlying issue, too, is the metrics and what we're measuring against success. Are we increasing understanding? Are we just enabling reach? What are our goals? And then we should be building in the channels that help match to our strategic goals. I uh, saw some data recently where they basically asked both the industry and the HCPs around different channels and what their preferences were. And what you basically saw is that the, the underutilized channels were the kind of the more modern channels, the more digital channels, and the, the channels where that are like, uh, I guess, overappreciated in a way were more like the, for instance, the field medical function and so on, by which I'm not saying that it's not important, but I guess you can kind of see this, that we're catching up with modern communications right? The more traditional channels are still uh, very prominent in what we do, while the more modern channels are still catching on and we're trying to find ways to use those more, in my view. I think a lot of it has to do with kind of just change management, right? And getting comfortable. But it is also, I think we're more comfortable talking about views when you talk about views of your paper. So you know, we reported out 10,000 views within three months. And that's also looked upon by our leadership as very 
impactful, right? Pubs in particular are our currency in communications. But when you start to think about, well, we got a thousand views on this paid media channel, that's interesting, right? And it's important. You paid for those views. So you're reporting out a metric that you paid for. And how does that relate to the bigger picture in terms of your overall engagement, your reach, and your impact? I think that's why it gets a little challenging. But I do think we undercut ourselves in the process because sometimes we don't necessarily think we have metrics that report impacts, but we only rely on views and downloads. But there are other things that we don't account for as readily, like citations and guidelines, like sentiment and like building in social media. And we don't think about those things as holistically as perhaps we could. And once you start to do that, you begin to understand that it is important to have a bit of a media mix. And that will help you achieve what you need in terms of that impact, reach and engagement, if that's what you're looking for. I agree. Like, and it, it is actually, that's a topic that has kept me thinking for a long time now. And this is why I'm kind of a proponent for companies to build some kind of centralized content source or a content place, right? Like maybe an educational website so that you have one point where you can measure your metrics, regardless whether they come from paid media or social media or any other place. Also, when you look at the different types of metrics that you have, like we have the journal level metrics, right? Like impact factor would be the most simple example of that. And then we have publication level metrics, right? Like alt metric. And, you know, we're all used to those, but they're kind of composites. And we don't really yet have something for anything beyond that, like paid media, like publication extenders, like PLS's enhanced publication content, right? Like, and I guess it is up to us as an industry to come up with like the third composite and figure out an easier way to make this more, I guess, to make it easier to benchmark, to understand what success actually means and how to measure this. So I think what you said is really interesting for a number of reasons, right? So a centralized source to drive people to, to post materials, I think that's a wonderful thing if that's where you, if you can get your audience to go there. And I think that the reality of the world too is that we have tons of, I'm not a data scientist, but I'll call it unstructured data from all of these different sources. And getting all of that pulled into one master place, maybe that'll happen before you and I retire, right? For a lot of these, for a lot of the places that we work for. So I think that's, but I think there are going to be technologies that help us do that. I think that analytics is changing. So I think that's very interesting. I do think that we need to evolve how we're doing things. And I think that even the journals are very interested in this too. And they're evolving how they're posting their own metrics as well. But we tend to look at things one channel at a time. So you look at your social media metrics, so you look at your QX and trend, and then you look at your journal views. The better thing to do would be to look at them all against what your KPIs are. And you may, and it'll help you understand if you can turn a particular piece channel on more actively or if you need to try to achieve more views within a certain time frame. If you're looking at things in different, across those different channels, because the real world doesn't only, your physicians, your audiences don't only go to one place and only think of one thing at a time. So the way that we analyze our metrics should reflect 
their experiences as well. And I think we'll get there. I think some metrics like alt metric, even like impact factors and things like that, they do take into account some of those other things, right? And that's helping us. And I think we'll continue to see more of that over time, I hope. And I hope that we are able to continue to build in the more traditional metrics that we talk about that are immensely valuable and important, like the field medical metrics, but to have that conversation in its totality, more holistically, even across the teams is going to be really important. And we're going to have to get more comfortable with having those conversations with different stakeholders at the table on a more regular basis. And MedComs is so wonderful because we are a hub for communicating across other line functions. And we have views of our other teams that they don't necessarily have. So we can be masters at this if we do it right. And it's a big opportunity. I like how you outlined this. It's exactly how I'm thinking. So pretty excited about that. Now, we got to know each other kind of in the conference circuit, right? Like talking about publication extenders. So I know we have a shared passion for that. Could you maybe just as a piece of context outline how you look at publication extenders? So what are they? How do they potentially provide benefits in the process? Well, Wesley, I think you gave a masterclass in this. So I'll do my best, but I would definitely say that I am sitting here with an expert in the field as well. And then just one other thing, and then I promise I'll answer your question. You mentioned the circuit. I think that's funny because I hear that when I talk about the bigger medical meetings too. It has never been more important to be a part of your professional societies. Never engage, get on the circuit because that's where you're going to learn from people and you're going to learn things that are coming out that you don't see in the literature necessarily or even talk about in the water cooler conversations with your colleagues. So just a plug there first. Publication extenders to me, and you can correct my definition, are, are anything that help us to extend, some people call them enhancements, the reach of our peer-reviewed publications. I think about these in terms of, we've already talked about QXMD and TrendMD, where we're not necessarily curating the content from the paper, we're not adapting it in any way, but we're getting it out there and visible to a broader audience. It includes those channels like paid media, it includes social media, it includes, but also infographics, video adaptations, podcasts, and a lot of journals are increasingly offering ways to adapt your papers in order to do that. And this enables people who have different reading styles, learning styles, to consume your content and better understand it. So how did I do? What did I miss? You tell me. Perfect. Yes. And I think like maybe to provide some context to your answer, like, you know, if we talk about understanding our audiences, right, like you see so much data right now on how the life of the average HCP actually looks like. And I think we sometimes forget that. On average, they have about two hours per week they can spend on consuming content, like as in like self-studying. But this is not a consecutive block of two hours when they can sit down and focus, right? This is more like five, 10 minutes in between patients, perhaps. There's a huge administrative burden up on our dear HCPs right now that they have to deal with. So it's like, it's these little nuggets of time they have. And therefore, if you look at data on like preferred content formats, the commonality between everything they prefer is basically it is short and concise. 
and it tells them what they need to know. So I think that's really interesting. I think it does depend on your situation. So physicians and we're and the thing, remember, I live in oncology. So I think about oncologists in general. We've done some research, but we know physicians are seeing more patients than ever before. We have data that tells us they're seeing sometimes upwards of 40 patients a week. I wonder how they do it. I really do. If, you know, you gave some numbers there that I've heard before as well, that they have about two hours of time, right, in between all of this and in between clinic days to get information. So they need it quickly. But they're also, like, when they're shifting in those days, imagine, you know, walking in a room and seeing one patient and then talking to them about a life-threatening or a chronic disease, perhaps, and then having to move over into a conversation with the next patient just a few minutes after and resetting your brain. They're facing, and that's actually, so I was, we talk a lot with physicians, and that's actually a true experience of what that one physician conveyed to me that is a challenge that isn't as frequently cited, that they're having to change gears and have these discussions as well. So there's that. But so all that's fine. That's needing information concisely, directly, quickly. Oftentimes, they're just going to phone a friend, an expert in their network. So we need to understand their networks. But they are also researchers, right? We have MD, PhDs. We have people who are writing grants. We have people who are, you know, leading these major clinical trials. And their needs are different at times. And some of them do want to read the full paper as well. And I think it's interesting to think about what our papers represent. We have papers and we have adaptations of content that are short form, that are designed to get the point across quickly. Then we have kind of a school where the publication is kind of the record of the trial or the study, the living record of everything that we have. There's a certain level of posterity there that's important. So what you need depends on your situation. So there's room in the world for all of this. I think the challenge becomes quickly finding what you need because you don't always want the five-word summary, although we increasingly rely on the headlines and we don't read the full thing because we don't have as much time as we need. But I'm hopeful that new technologies are going to help us find what we need faster and that will help us make better use of all these extenders and all this work that we've done to be able to communicate our point. Absolutely. I'm not surprised you're saying this as like omni-channel expert. And I think one of the other things that feeds into this is like, I personally see a lot of singularity in how the industry approaches communicating about these things. It's more like, oh, we have a phase three paper, let's make an infographic. Like you just said, there are many different profiles out there that need different things. One person might want to hear a podcast during gym workout, right? Another person might want to read the full publication because they're like the academic researcher profile. And we kind of need to cater to all of these different needs. And because of that, you can't really, you know, stick with one singular approach. The other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is like the impact of how the personal lives of HEPs have changed too. Because ultimately, we're all just people, right? So they're also scrolling probably on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, right? Like in our personal lives, we're getting used to extremely short form content. And this must somehow flow over into our professional lives where it just becomes harder and harder to work with long form content, except when 
you are so intent and focused on wanting to know all of that, you are the researcher. Yeah, that is probably the exception. Yes, we are constantly exposed to information now, and we do rely on short-form content. There was a gentleman at Microsoft who gave a presentation years ago, and this was years ago, he said, the attention span of a goldfish is, is nine seconds. The attention span of a human being is eight seconds. It's probably worse than that now. And then you couple that with the pressures of seeing patients, right, and the fact that we're in healthcare. We're not selling people a sweater. We're dealing with their personal health. And your personal lives bleed into your professional lives. I learn a lot from my son about social media, for example. He's 14. And it definitely affects where I go for information. I go to places like I do look at TikTok. I get encouraged to look at TikTok a lot these days, which is interesting for a whole nother set of reasons. I look at things like social, like LinkedIn, right, like X. And it's interesting because the information that flows through those channels is fundamentally different than what we get in other channels. So I see a lot of the the tech folks on LinkedIn, for example, and there are a lot of tech communities that I'm part of. And that's a great resource for finding links to preprints that I don't see when I look at other communities. So you really do have to become savvy about what these channels are and where to go, depending on what your question is. It's really right tool for right question. That hasn't changed either. That's a saying that's been around for quite a while as well. That makes sense. I have a question for you that I think a lot of people would benefit from, which is around like, so the communications landscape is changing, right? Like, and it kind of all starts with the publication. But previously, when we would do publication planning, there's a kind of a pretty logical way to do that, right? Like, you know your product, you know the different conferences, there's a clear timeline you can put on that. It's all easy to plan out. But now we're suddenly going to create infographics, podcasts, videos, whatever it might be. So how do you now plan for that? Like, how could you integrate that in the publication planning in a better way? So we have spirited discussions on this with our colleagues these days, right? So the journey doesn't actually start with the paper. It starts way before that. So it starts with our development colleagues, right? And engaging with them and working with them closely to understand what they're trying to achieve and why they're building the trials the way they are, et cetera. And then you want to think about before the publication, long before the publication, I would argue, who your audiences are going to be. Omnichannel is about getting the right content to the right audience. And so you want to think about your audiences. You want to think about who you want to reach, what data you're going to have, right? And what's going to be compelling to them. And then you can think about how you need to say it. And if you think of it that way, then you can start to understand and analyze which publication extenders and channels are going to be most appropriate for your audiences. I think that's challenging because it, it sounds very um, idealistic, right? Like the world is messy. It doesn't always function that way. But again, we can collect data on our audiences and we can understand our physician behaviors up front. We can understand which extenders are doing better than others and overlay that with what we know about our audiences. And that'll help us make better decisions because we can't possibly do every extender for every single paper 
that's out there. That's not going to work out. And even if you have endless budget, that's not the way to approach it best, I would argue. So how about timing? Because there is no logic really, right? Like if you say, I have an abstract and there is a conference, that makes sense. But now I have a podcast and an infographic. You don't necessarily need to align it with a conference, right? And do I want to push everything out right at the same time when I release? Do I have to do the podcast and the infographic and the paper all at once? Or is it better to wait a little while and then release the plain language summary? The unsatisfying answer is it depends, right, on your situation. What might help or what helps me is to try to get ahead of the game as much as possible in terms of understanding your audience. And you can do that through things like surveys, right, and consulting with your other line functions and your colleagues in your company. And then trying to obtain metrics where as much as you can, if you have historical metrics, great. And you might need to experiment a little. You might need to... Do one where you release it right away and then try something else where you released it later on and then try to understand whether you see a difference there. At least for me, we're not experimenting to that level yet. We're still just really trying to even understand the channels and the appropriate ways to even compliantly participate in these bodies. So I hope that we'll get there. We're certainly not there yet. But I hope we can be data-driven and think more about things like benchmarks as well when we have these conversations. I like that. I haven't been really thinking about that, but experimenting would probably be a great idea to build, the, you know, like our experience, our collective experience. What do our commercial colleagues do? A-B testing? What do we do in, in the labs, right? A lot of us come from the bench. So I think it's, and not necessarily asking or trying to solve for too many things at one time either. So that's where I hope we're getting. I hope it really is a science in communications. I really hope that's the future of our field. I think we're going to see more of that. And we're going to need to be very conversant in it and learn how to use it. Couldn't agree more. You just mentioned omnichannel, and I kind of wanted to pivot to that topic a little bit. So Jenny, when I ask two people in the industry what omnichannel is, I get like at least six different opinions and I think uh, everyone is kind of a little bit in that state of mind. So can you help demystifying the right definition of omnichannel? It's something that gets discussed a lot. Definitely a buzzword. Although I would argue that I'm starting to see it as more of a standard term than there used to be because we're part of the Congress circuit, for example. You see it kind of as foundational. Omnichannel to me, is really about understanding your audience and reaching them with the right information that suits their needs at the right time and in the right way or in the right format. That's a very plain language definition of it, right? But at, at its essence, I think that's what it's supposed to be. And I think we get lost in... When I start to talk to people about omnichannel, or when you're earlier on in your life cycle of exploring it at your companies, we tend to race to the channel part of it. It's much easier to just try to blast out content across a bunch of different platforms. In a lot of places, the incentive to do that is very strong, right? You get rewarded for being first at something. That's what we want to chase. But if you really try to be omni-channel, right, 
you have to reset that conversation. And again, bring it back to, do you really know if you're reaching this person? Are you really enhancing their understanding of material? Are you getting cited in guidelines? Or is it just that, you know, you've, you're tracking a gazillion impressions of something, but you don't have any sense yet of whether you've actually changed their behavior or their understanding? I think it's still aspirational in a lot of ways, in a lot of, in a, in a lot of different capacities at a lot of different companies. But I think over time, it's becoming more possible because of technology and because of what we're going to be able to do in order to reach people. That makes a lot of sense. But I was thinking about like the difference with multi-channel as well, where in my, uh, and you can correct me if you want, but like in my field, the difference here really is in multi-channel, you just use multiple channels, right? And, but there's not necessarily this kind of connective experience and consistent experience across the different channels that don't necessarily work together. They're more like isolated. And I think that is where I see a lot of struggle right now. Like, I think what a lot of companies are doing is actually multi-channel. They call it omni-channel, but it is multi-channel. And I was wondering about your view, how, so let's say you're capable running multi-channel how do you turn that into omnichannel? How do you connect the different functions, for instance? Because it looks like functions are kind of correlating to the channel, right? So for instance, field medical is also a channel, like pups, the pups department is a channel in a way. Like, how do we connect those? I think it helps to come back to your audience, right? So when we go multi-channel, what at least it tends to happen in my experience is you tend to think, okay, I'm reaching oncologists or urologists or whatever, right? Rheumatologists. And we have these channels that are good in rheumatology, right? And in multi-channel, you're also only looking at your metrics and your results in a siloed capacity too, by the way. But if you think about the experience of those individuals, what actually does a physician do all day, Right. They wake up in the morning or an allied health professional. They wake up in the morning. They have a cup of coffee. They go to Medscape, OnGlive, whatever. I don't endorse any of these channels, by the way. Just examples. They go to these places for 10 minutes. They get in the car and maybe they're taking their kids to school and then they listen to a podcast. And then they go to clinic, right? And et cetera, et cetera. And you try to construct what that really looks like and where they go. And I think that gets you closer to omnichannel. And I think we have a lot of misconceptions about what their days actually look like. Because if you, we've constructed some of those journeys and, and we've tested them, right? Like we've actually talked to our audiences. Talk to your audience. Don't make assumptions. They may say, well, that's really ambitious. That is not at all what happens in my day. My day is a dumpster fire. And I'm lucky if at the end of the day, I get to spend five minutes surfing the internet. So you really need to understand the experience, not just what their job description is. And that will help you get to, okay, what channel should I be on? Does that channel actually have the reach? Does it get to someone who's in the community? Or should I just send them print materials because that's what they're using in their offices with their patients, right? That can also be a channel for Omnichannel. So I think you have to 
get beyond how you traditionally think about these peoples. And that feels soft and fuzzy, and it feels like we're trying to be commercial. Sometimes some people will say that, but it's not. It's understanding people and understanding how they consume communicate so that you can better communicate with them. I like that. And I mean, uh, I'm a big believer in understanding your audience, right? I don't think you can communicate effectively if you don't know your audience really well. But it is, of course, there's a barrier, right? Like if you look at the industry, there are so many people that are working in the industry, but have never set a foot in the doctor's office to actually talk with one. That is a definitely like problem, right? And, and that is kind of how I feel a little bit about us, for instance, as an agency, we can help bridging that as far as we can, in a way. But I think that is a hurdle. And that hurdle is not unique to our industry either. I think in almost every vertical that you have, there is a kind of a gap between the company and their clients. And it is kind of unexpected if you think about it. But like often you need some kind of third party to really get to know your clients or you need to find opportunities to be more out there and actually communicate and ask the hard questions. I absolutely agree with you, first of all. It's so hard and we make a lot of assumptions. So find ways to to do that, right, that are different than your day-to-day. But also our perceptions of what we're saying and how it's being received, our use of language is, I just find it lately, especially because we talk about AI a lot, extremely fascinating. So there's what we communicate and the jargon and the lexicon that we use and how that information is received. So we don't even realize it when we're saying it. We try to bring the language down in our discussions with patients to make it appropriate for patient audiences. But even when we're communicating with physicians as industry, when we're communicating with other professions, which we're increasingly challenged to do when we're talking to data scientists, when we're bringing data scientists and clinicians together to talk to each other and try to interpret results, I mean, I just find it so fascinating to think about the misconceptions that occur, that can occur. And also when we publish, the language that we use is getting put into systems that are ingesting it and then spitting information back out that is then interpreted. So I think there's reaching the audience and also rethinking how we're conveying the information as well in this new world that we're living in. That's probably a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I would agree. And I think it's extremely hard to really, really imagine how someone else's situation looks like. If you just look at the fact that if we work on a certain therapy or product, we know everything about it. It is what consumes us, right? Like in the industry, that's what we know everything. We have all the data. We're working on all these projects. Now we visit the doctor. For them, it might be 5% of their life. And for us, it's 100. And we need to understand that somehow. And I had just had before this recording, I had an interesting conversation with someone where there was kind of a situation where someone introduced themselves as an MSL and the doctor said, like, what is an MSL? You know, and for us, that's like completely logical. We would assume that they all know that, but it's just us. We know that. That's our world. But in their world, it might not really matter. It might confuse the MSL with a sales rep or the other way around. It doesn't really, if no one tells them, And if we think they know and we don't tell them, they will never know. So I think making these assumptions is very dangerous. If you're a medical writer and you're working as a publication professional and you get on the phone with a physician and you say, I'm a medical writer and I'm here to support you 
I think we're more familiar with this situation, probably. They don't know what you do, right? And we went through so much as a field, as publication professionals, in clarifying what that meant. So what is happening, and it has very real implications. So what is happening now is that experience, you know, I think there are learnings there that we should consider, and we need to choose our words carefully because they are being used in ways that we didn't even think of. And when we talk about how these systems are being tested, how we're testing, there's a personal qualitative reactions and interactions and the ability to misinterpret those. And then there's like the more quantitative piece where we're thinking about things like keyword searches, whether these tools can pass medical licensing exams. What domains should we evaluate when we're thinking about clarity when we're thinking about our play language summaries and are we at the appropriate reading level? But, you know, did we get all the uh, information across? There's a lot of very interesting research going on about kind of the density of how we think as human beings and what our preferences are that happen in the writing. So again, I think we have to challenge ourselves to explore that information, explore that research, and talk to people from other fields to better understand the disconnects, right? And we're not even talking about what's happening when you speak with people from other countries and they're consuming information and they are speaking in different languages. They're coming from countries with different frames of reference in terms of their treatment regimens and access to tools and things. All of that comes into play when we're trying to write these articles and trying to communicate this information. These are all things that we can think about as the papers are being written, right, before the papers are being written, so that we're not acting kind of reactively with the information later. I have a final question for you, Jenny. And it is like, uh, you know, the, the teenagers of today that will run the medical communications of tomorrow, right? So what do you think they will do differently? How will the world look like in our field? Oh, gosh. I think about my son, who's a teenager, who's a future medcoms professional, I hope, right? In all seriousness, I think that they have access to so much that we didn't have. But it's really important that they not lose sight, again, of the fundamentals. How to think critically how to analyze facts, how to ask questions, those things are all the more important, right, to teach in the schools and for people to focus on. And But the people who are able to do that and use the technologies are going to be the ones who succeed. It's not whether these things are going to take over our jobs, right? There's a lot of very apocalyptic concerns happening in the world right now with digital and with artificial intelligence. But I don't think that it's going to be that the robots are going to take away what we have because we still have to think and do all of those things and really use science in ways that the machines aren't yet. So I'm optimistic because there are people, our children, our future generations, are going to have all of this at their fingertips. And they're going to have more time to think about things 
instead of doing all those rudimentary tasks that we kind of have to spend too much time on these days. That's a very deep insight. I like it. Well, it was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for taking the time and share your expertise with our audience. I really enjoyed our discussion as always. Wesley, you're lovely. It's a privilege and a pleasure. And I hope this helps. And, you know, please continue the good work that you're doing. And I very much look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thank you. Take care. Transforming Medical Communications is brought to you by MedComs Experts. To find out more about MedComs Experts and how we create some of the most cutting-edge medical communications programs anywhere in the world, visit www.medcoms-experts.com. And then make sure to search for Transforming Medical Communications in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at MedComs Experts, thanks for listening.